Welcome back to Professional AF. I am Diana Kander, excited to be with you today. We took a short, inadvertent break for season three. I had a baby. It wasn't an accident or anything. I, I did know uh, that it was coming and it, it, she came on time. It's just that I had hoped to be much more ahead of schedule with the episodes, which we weren't. But now Baby and I are doing fantastic. We're excited to hang out together during the day and bring you more incredible episodes for season three, like today's show with our first ever repeat guest, Annie Duke. Annie has just come out with a brand new book called How to Decide Simple Tools for Making Better choices. Now, you may remember she's a professional poker player who has won more than $4 million in tournament poker before retiring from the game in 2012. Before becoming a professional poker player, she was awarded a National Science Foundation Fellowship to study cognitive psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. So she has legit credibility in the decision-making space apart from her incredible success as a poker player. And she's also the co-founder of the Alliance for Decision Education, a nonprofit that teaches students on how to make better decisions. Today, she's a consultant, a speaker, a writer in the decision-making space. And Annie and I are going to discuss the new book. And the most important topics we cover are how to be the most humble. I know all of us want to be the most humble person in the room. How to make better decisions, something she calls decision hygiene, how you make sure that your opinion doesn't affect others' opinions when you're trying to get feedback. Why looking back at past decisions is so hard and what you can do to make your reflections so much more useful. We're going to talk about how to know if you're really learning from both failures and successes. And at the end, you get Annie Duke's personal contact info. I don't know why she gave it out, but it's really cool that it's going to be right here in this episode. Before we get to the show, I'd love for you to take a second to review the episode. Make sure you're subscribed so you get all the amazing content the rest of the season and Please enjoy this incredible episode with Annie Duke. Annie Duke, welcome back. You're the first and only repeat guest uh, that I've ever had on my show. Oh my gosh, really? These, That's exciting. Yeah, you keep writing these awesome books. So, <laughs> Well, thank you. Oh my gosh, I feel so honored. <laughs> I'm excited to have you back. I really enjoyed the book and you just finished reading the audio book. I did. I did. So, you know, obviously COVID. So it was the last time when I did the audiobook for um, Thinking in Bets, I, I went up to New York to the publisher, actually. And they have really beautiful sound studios there and a director right there and a sound engineer. And I kind of did two full days in order to get it done, but uh, some constraints. Uh-huh. <laughs> So I have a lovely friend who had access to a studio that really nobody's been in. And she also knows how to do sound. So um, director on Zoom and in three-hour sessions. It was like four three-hour oh sessions. Gosh. Well, the last one, actually, I was so close that I extended it a half hour. So I wouldn't have to come back <laughs> the next day. But um, uh, I always find reading books to be your own book for audio to be very challenging. Because there, you know, it's done. It was like there, there was a couple of places where I was like, oh, could I change this? They're like, no, right. it is locked. <laughs> and I, I always find that as you talk about your work, you understand your work better and you're sort of workshopping with the people you're having conversations with to kind of figure out like what are the explanations that really resonate and land and what are the ones that are maybe a little bit sideways and you kind of wish that you could go back in and dig in and <laughs> say things a new way. So then when you come back to it to read it as an audio, it's, there's a little bit of horror involved, I have to say. Well, let's dive in. It feels like most people uh, think they're pretty good at making decisions, you know, unless they get evidence to the contrary, they feel like they're solid, right? Yeah. So I think, I think there's, that's so insightful. <laughs> Thank you. So I think, I. Uh, by the way, nobody's had, I've had a lot of conversations. People haven't said that to me yet, which I, so I love it oh, when really? somebody says something new. Yes. Which I love. Well, thank you. Um, so, uh, I think there's two problems. Um, it's a li- most people think they're good at walking and, and the right. reason is that they've been walking their whole lives. Right. So, uh, from w- the littlest tiny baby is making decisions. Um, they're less complicated 
obviously than the kinds of decisions that, that we have to make, but, um, you've been making decisions your whole life. So I think that people sort of intuit that they're pretty good at it. I think that's number one. I think number two is that this is a situation where, uh, it's very easy to fool yourself into thinking that your decisions are pretty good. And the reason is it kind of goes back to what I talked about in thinking and bets, which is we have these uncertainties, right? Uh, and they're coming from two places. One um, is luck. So even, even if I know as much as I do about a coin, I still don't know if it's going to flip heads or tails on the next try. So there's some luck in the way that things turn out. Um, but then there's also incomplete information, right? I just don't know a lot. In fact, I know quite, quite very little compared to all there is to know. And so what kind of happens is that you get this um, pulling apart, like this disconnection between the outcome of a, a single decision and the underlying decision quality, where those things aren't related in a one-to-one fashion. I can run through a green light and get through fine, or I could get in an accident. Same decision, different outcomes. I could run through a red light, get through fine. I could get in an accident, same decision, different outcomes. And so what happens is that as we sort of think about our rationales for for why did we get a bad outcome or why did we get a good one, the decision quality itself can actually hide in the shadows when it doesn't fit with a narrative about what great decision makers we are. So what's happening is that particularly, for example, when we have success, we just accept it. Like, I'm great. (laughs) When we have failure, we're generally sort of looking for a way to offload the failure onto something. Um, Some of which you can just sort of do retrospectively. I got unlucky. That's one way to do it, right? Um, But the other is to kind of do things in advance to make sure that you can offload it. For example, to try to get consensus before the decision so that if it works out poorly, I can say, well, um, you know, everybody thought that. So, you know, we went through a process, we, you know, all of that stuff. So when that happens, if, if, if I can say, well, Diana signed off on it, then that that's another way for me to sort of offload responsibility, not thinking about whether it's a good process to get consensus or not. Right. So we're, we're not really thinking about that. We're just sort of trying to do some CYA stuff. So what happens to us is that we intuit that we're really good decision makers it becomes very, very important to our identity that we think of ourselves as good decision makers, particularly as we're sort of moving through our careers and and parenting and whatnot. We really want to think about that as our identity. And then the world, because there's this kind of looseness about it from these uncertainties that these linkages are not, you know, made of solid iron, you know, um, we can sort of break those linkages in a way that allows us to interpret the outcome to sort of fit our favor. And then we sort of fool ourselves into continuing to think we're great decision makers. So what's interesting is that even if the world is offering us feedback that we might want to prove our decision-making, we're quite good at ignoring it and going along as if we're good decision-makers anyway. You know, one of the things that I do uh, on stage and talking to groups is ask them what percent of their daily decisions could be much better. And I define that as like, is the opposite of the decision that you made or, you know, could have just been a significantly better decision. And the one big takeaway is it is literally the first time anybody has ever thought about (laughs) what percent of their daily decisions could be much better. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. They just function in a world being like, they're all pretty good. But now that I think about it, maybe 10%, you know? Oh my gosh. That, you know, that's such a good question to ask people um, to oh, in a way to get them into that that kind of second order knowledge. I love that. And I may completely steal that from you if that's okay. Please, please With, steal it from me. I, I will ne- definitely give you credit. But No, 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 no. Because the next thing that I say is, uh, according to our first conversation, um, you know, according to game theory, at the peak of your expertise in your particular area, uh, you know, it's probably 50% that right. you're making decisions that could be much better. Yep. Now, knowing that <laughs> for the first time in your life, wouldn't you want to know which ones are the wrong decisions as quickly as possible? 
And I, I don't know like what you say to people to get them over that hump, because now we're entering an area of humility, which you've written about is one of the key parts to this having a good decision making process. And, you know, one of the problems with humility is that research shows that over 90 percent of people think they have it when in reality, only 15 percent of people actually have it. So how do you get them over the hump? Yeah. So, gosh, is, isn't this like the biggest problem, right? <laughs> so so let me let me just let me just sort of set the problem up. Yeah. Uh, if I were to ask most people. Do you want to become a better decision maker over time? I've, I have yet to run into someone who says no to that. <laughs> uh, and then I say, okay, so let me ask you a question. Do you think that in order to become a better decision maker, at some point you're going to find, have to find out that something that you believe currently today is wrong? And they say, well, yes, I suppose that that would have to be true. Do you think that you're going to have to find out that a decision that you have made in the past was not great quality, maybe one that you thought was, in order to become a better decision maker? And they agree to that. So I still don't have anybody who said no to those things. Yes, I agree. I want to be a better decision maker. And in order to do that, I'm going to have to find out that I'm maybe not so great as I think and that some stuff that I believe isn't true. But what happens is that in the moment when you're actually confronted with the possibility that something is not true that you believe or that a decision that you made, maybe particularly one that turned out really well, was maybe not so hot and maybe you got lucky, uh, everybody swats that one away. Uh, people just don't really want to hear it. So the way that I handle this is kind of twofold. One is to structure the process to kind of reduce the chances of that happening. And the other is a mindset shift. So I'll start with the mindset shift first. Sure. I think that if we recognize that really where that's coming from is that I want to have a positive self-narrative. I want to think well of myself and, and uh, I want to think I'm smart and I'm competent. And in particular, I think that we all sort of want to feel that we're smart and competent in comparison to other people. I mean, this is kind of the basis of human beings by nature are tribal. So a uh, tribe is not just giving you feeling like a belongingness to a group, but it's also giving you a feeling of distinctiveness from other people and distinct in a way that you would view as positive. Now, we can see sort of like negative effects of tribe, obviously, in politics, um, but we know that there are positive effects of tribe. And the reason why we know that is because we're very tribal. And so it, there had to be advantages, and mainly the advantage was human beings can't beat a house cat in a physical fight. Um, but we can outthink the house cat. So uh, in order to overcome the fact that we can't beat a house cat in a physical fight, we banded together in order to protect our resources. And so that's really what Tribe was giving us is a way to overcome our physical inadequacies. So um, so what, what I try to do in terms of mindset is say, well, let's allow you to be tribal because I don't think that we should necessarily fight those instincts. I think we should just harness the power of that for good as opposed to evil. So uh, what I say is let's let's create this tribe that open-mindedness is the thing that is defining this tribe that you're in. So you could imagine like kind of a silly sort of in a meta way, like, oh, our, our team is so great at m- admitting mistakes and that team's so poor at it. Do you see what, like, right? So it, which yeah. at once sounds a little closed-minded because you're not necessarily, you're sort of dissing the other team. But at the other, uh, in the other sense, it's actually giving you kind of a greater good, which is it's reinforcing this idea of like, we listen and uh, we aren't defensive around here and we're open-minded to what other people have to say. And um, we uh, will adjust our worldview according to evidence. And we really like to tell people in an excited way when we got something wrong. And that's what makes us better than everybody else. Right. So I'm just a big fan of that approach. Yeah, I love it. Um, so that's the approach I use. And, you know, I suppose some people might say, but shouldn't we accept everybody and not be like that? And I'm like, in an ideal world, sure, but you you have to solve the problems that are that are right here in terms of your own ability to perform and your own ability to improve. And if, you know, set as a longer term goal, the sort of like I can be like, uh, you know, just sort of zen and reach nirvana, 
right? And be Buddha um, and have that as your longer term goal. But like in the short term, let, let's just try to at least get the open-mindedness on your team, the open-mindedness in your own life, the open-mindedness in your own group and, and try to have humility be sort of the defining factor of tribal membership, if that makes sense. Of course. Um, so let, yeah. let's talk about how to be the most humble people out there. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly right. So the other way that I kind of handle it is just kind of through constraints. So I, I just kind of constrain people's ability to uh, not be humble. So how do I explain this? So um, I, basically, if you think about the way that most meetings run and you think about the way that most people interact, um, it is actually to cause dispersion of opinion, the, the places where we disagree, uh, to hide in the shadows, right? To sort of disappear from view so that we don't actually see them, so that we're feeling reinforced a lot in our own points of view. If you think about uh, the way that we talk to each other, we tend to linger on areas of agreement and not really expose areas of disagreement. Um, when we uh, interpret the world, as we, as we sort of think about the information that we're running into, we are attracted like moths to a flame to information and people that agree with us. And when we do actually collide with things that disagree with us, we don't pay it full attention. We uh, will swat it away and discredit it pretty quickly. We could do that because of a proxy, right? Who, who's the deliverer of the information and not actually consider the information. Um, or we can just apply a different standard. So uh, when we see something that agrees with us, we can say, well, that's obviously right. Period. <laughs> And when we see something disagrees disagrees with us, we start thinking about what is the data that they're not considering and what, what are the holes in their logical argument. And, you know, we'll sort of write a dissertation about why it's so wrong. Um, and, and that's really sort of the antithesis of open-mindedness, right? Because open, open-mindedness should be, I should be able to listen to your point of view and then uh, query you about it, not in a way to say to you, but you haven't thought about this or you're wrong or whatever, but more to say, I didn't understand this point. Could you please explain it further to the point where I should be able to repeat that point of view back to you where I really, really understand it. And through that process, we both get to understand the ideas better because you have to explain it to me. Just like when I write a book, I find out that a lot of the things that were really articulate in my head are actually ridiculous. Um, and so I end up knowing my ideas better than I would have. Um, and then you get the opportunity through the, the ex, so, so, and then I get the opportunity through hearing you and sort of querying you to really understand what you're saying. And so this is setting up a conversation, uh, not to convince other people of what you believe, but to convey information. So it's kind of what you want to do. So how can you kind of do this structurally in order to make sure that, that you're developing that kind of open-mindedness and humility, and you're keeping constraints around this other kind of behavior? So, so on a one-on-one -on -one basis, let's kind of walk through the exercise. Um, so th this is the question that I have for you. We know that when people talk to each other, that it tends to be to try to convince people of what they believe or to um, hide disagreement because we don't like to disagree with the people we're talking with. So there's all sorts of ways that when I talk to you, I'm not going to find out your true opinion. And it's not like consciously on purpose, but subconsciously it's on purpose because I don't really want to hear it if you have an opinion that's different than mine. So here is my simple question to you. If I'm talking to you and I'm trying to get feedback on you about something, it could be like a movie I saw or a business tactic I'm thinking about or a strategy shift, any of those, anything that you could think that I'm getting feedback on. What is it that you need to know from me in order to know that the feedback you're giving me contradicts what my beliefs are. Well, I need to know your beliefs. Exactly. So this is literally, if there's one thing that I could change in the world, this is the thing that I would change. When people talk to each other, if I'm trying to get your feedback on something, I will almost always give you my opinion first. 
Because I think that two things, I think we think it's important data, which it's not. And I think I'm really trying to let you know, like these are my beliefs, so please don't agree with me, disagree with me. And it's super simple. It's like, if I'm asking you about um, a a show, like let's say I'm asking you about like Schitt's Creek, right? I'll say to you, so what did you think of Schitt's Creek? I mean, the first six episodes, you sort of need to give it time, but then I thought it was really hilarious. And Catherine O'Hara is just like uh, literally a national treasure. And, but, you know, I'm, and I'm going to tell you some stuff. And then I'm going to say, so, so have you watched it? What do you think? Now, notice what I've done there. I, I've put you in an impossible position um, because what's going to happen is it's, there's a variety of things that can happen there. One is, that as I'm telling you this, your opinion of the show may actually change during my telling of this narrative about how I feel about it. And then what ends up coming out of your mouth is actually different than what your opinion started at. So your opinion can bend toward mine. And then by the time I hear your opinion back to me, it's actually quite different than what your original belief was. And we haven't had a chance to explore that in a real way. You can imagine how this happens when a subject matter expert is speaking. Or leadership, someone who's in a leadership role, a senior role, um, is speaking in, say, a team meeting, that uh, as people are listening to them, they may have started with a very different opinion on the matter than what eventually comes out of their mouth, having heard the opinions of someone who they believe is in sort of a superior position to them, either knowledge-wise or just positionally speaking. So that's one thing that could happen. Um, so that would happen, for example, if I told you about a hand of poker. It's very likely that if I were asking for your feedback about a hand of poker that I played and I told you what my opinion was, what I actually did during the hand, which would be what I was trying to get feedback on, that your opinion would change because you would view me as someone who has more expertise. So if I, if I said um, somebody raised in front of me and I, had ace queen, and I had ace queen and I raised, do you think that was a good idea? It's likely your mind will change. That's one. Two is um, you may think something different. You may think I actually shouldn't have raised there, but you will not speak up because you're afraid that you'll be embarrassed because maybe I'm right and you're wrong. And so even though I didn't change your mind, you don't want to say so. And it may be that you don't want to embarrass me. So that's another problem with like a subject matter expert or leadership expressing the very feedback that they're trying to get from from the the team is that people don't generally want to embarrass people like that and, or they don't want to embarrass themselves. So either way, under any of those conditions, what's happened is that because I've offered you my opinion first, I don't actually know what you think. And I've lost the ability to see where your perspective might differ from mine, where you might have facts that are different, either corrective of facts that I have or additive to facts that I might have, um, so on and so forth. So there's a there's a simple fix in a one-on-one conversation. And? What do you think of Schitt's Creek? <laughs> right. I mean, it literally, it's like the simplest thing you can do. Yeah. You, you call it, in the book, you call it not infecting the other person with your yeah. opinion. And I love the, the visual of that, you know? It's like, it's viral if you yeah, say well, anything about it. So, yeah, I, I mean, I tell the story in the, in the book of poor Ignaz Semmelweis. <laughs> um, it's a very sad story. So Ignaz Semmelweis was a doctor in, I think it was the 1840s. And um, at that time, uh, 16% of women died from uh, childbed fever. I think if, I'm going to see if I can pronounce this correctly. Puerperal sepsis. I'm sure I butchered that. but I'm going to take fever. your expertise at it. Yeah. Childbed fever. So um, I, so this was a really big problem. I mean, 16% of women were dying from childbed fever. This is really awful. Very dangerous to have a baby back then. Um, so he noticed that uh, a colleague of his had done an autopsy and had cut his finger during the autopsy. And after he had cut his finger during the autopsy, he died of childbed fever. Now, obviously his colleague did not have a baby. So uh, Semmelweis surmised that there must be something that's being transferred from the dead bodies that you're handling 
to to the women that you're then giving birth to because at that time this idea of hand hygiene uh just wasn't around like people didn't wash their hands in between stuff so they would go into an autopsy and then they would go deliver a baby and nobody was really thinking twice about it and some always kind of connected these two things together and realized that there there must be this infection going on so he instituted a a, a policy of hand washing um at the hospital and childbed fever reduced from 16% to 2% and he promptly got fired, which seems strange, I know. But this is a good example of how we really are, are, don't, are sort of immune to the feedback that maybe our decisions could get better. Because the reason he got fired is that the doctors were just really pissed because they said, we're, we're gentlemen and our hands aren't dirty. So don't, don't tell us that our hands, like our gentlemanly hands are actually infecting these women. Uh, so he got fired. He got fired from two other postings. And then by the time he was in his 40s, he was in an insane asylum. And then he died of an infection. So, you know, so we want to be exercising these kinds of height, this hygiene all the time. I mean, obviously with coronavirus, we've really learned in in a real way, the importance of hand hygiene. Um, And we can transport that into thinking about decision hygiene as well. And how is it the, how am I thinking about controlling contagion within my decision-making environment? And if I tell you everything I know about Schitt's Creek, and then I ask for my opinion that there's an infection that's occurred. And so now I'm not going to hear what you have to say back. So I need to keep that clean. I need to keep the way that I'm sort of de- delivering the, the feedback elicitation, um, you know, sterile, basically. And if I can do that, then I'm going to get much better information from you. Now, obviously, I can do that one-on-one pretty easily. In a team, it's a little bit harder. Because, uh, yes, I could withhold my opinion, but as soon as I ask you, you'll then infect the whole group. So the way to actually instantiate this in a team setting is to do pre-work, which is figure out the feedback that you're trying to get. So let's just take a simple one. Um, You're on a hiring committee and you're trying to figure out, uh, let's say, one of your values. One of the things that you're trying to figure out is what the probability that that person will still be with your company is in a year. So, So let's just say you're particularly concerned about turnover. So um, I obviously you would be rating more things, but I could have every member of the committee after having interviewed the person and seen their CV and all of the things that you would want to do in order to get in, get some idea of the, the candidate, not speak to each other, but actually list these ratings out. So they might forecast the probability the candidate would be there in a year They could say on a scale of zero to five, how good of a cultural fit do I think this person is? Maybe kindness is really important to you on a scale of zero to five. How kind are they? Um, So you can just sort of figure out what your values are and the things that you're really trying to assess about that person. Have everybody fill out that form, basically, prior to entering the meeting and do it independently. So you've collected all of those uh, opinions independent of each other. Notice what that does. Nobody knows that they're disagreeing with anybody now. They're just actually offering up their opinion. They can then write a little rationale, right? I'm leaning in, I'm leaning out, whatever. I want to hire them, I don't. Uh, write a rationale as to why after filling out all those things. And then we can bring that into it together into a document and come into the meeting. So now what I've done is I've actually gotten an actual look into what, what everybody thinks prior to actually having a discussion about it. And that's going to give me the broadest number of perspectives. And it's actually going to harness the power of the team because the whole point of the team is I assume we think two heads are better than one. But the way that we normally talk to each other, we create one really big head. And so the quality of the decisions that are coming out of teams are not necessarily, I mean, they can be worse actually than the quality of a decision that if you just made the decision yourself. It's just that when you come out of a team, you feel more confident in it and you feel more CYA. So we talk about pre-work. I think that's a really um, important point. And you've said, like, it's really important to do pre-work up front to make sure you're learning the right lessons at the end. Can we first talk about why people learn the wrong lessons? Because let's say, like, in the small percentage of people who actually review their decision-making process... (laughs) Um, I have been doing so half this season, this season is entirely dedicated to failure and and getting better at failure. And half of my interviews are with people who have been at the forefront of like uh, very public things that didn't work out. 
And so I basically do like an after action review and ask them what they've learned. And oftentimes what they learned, like as an objective outsider, I'm like, oh, that is definitely not how I saw that as somebody who's not personally involved. So why why do do you think that people learn the wrong lessons, right lessons from looking back? And why is that? Yeah. So I think, I think that the, the problem is that it's just hard to piece together without an evidentiary record. So as I'm kind of looking back and trying to figure out what happened, um, you know, number one is I'm going to be trying to make sense of the world and, you know, this is where resulting comes in, right? I, I don't like the idea that um, things are random generally. So as, I, as I'm looking at it, I'm going to tend to, having known the outcome, I'm going to tend to try to make all of that fit together and make the actual decision quality sort of fit with the outcome that I saw. Um, and that's true of success as well. So one of the things I think that that's, really difficult to deal with in terms of learning from experience is that um, we don't actually learn equal from equally from both sides. So we'll tend to really dig into the failures and try to make sense of those and learn very bad lessons because we're going to either do one of two things. Uh, and it kind of it just depends on, are you reviewing somebody else? Are you reviewing yourself? Um, we're going to tend to either highlight the areas of luck um, if we're talking about ourselves, but with someone else, we're going to start to make that story fit and say that they created that failure when they didn't necessarily. There could be all sorts of random facts that occurred. Um, and then we don't really examine the successes in the sense that um, just because someone's successful doesn't mean their decisions were good. I mean, it's, that's just true, right? So what happens is that as we're doing this look back, we're sort of trying to reconstruct it. and we really lose sight of this. When I make a decision, there's all sorts of different ways that that decision could turn out. And we can see that at the time of the decision. But once we actually get an outcome, it's like we take a chainsaw to all those other branches of the tree and they're just gone. And we think that the way that things turned out had to be inevitable. So now we're sort of forced to make it so that that would that 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 fits in two ways. One is we're going to fit the decision process to 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 that outcome in a way where we're going to really be jamming a lot of square pegs into round holes. But the other thing is that it makes you start to think that you should have known that that would be the outcome. Because we know that that was the outcome, so it feels like it was the only possible one, and therefore we should have known it was going to occur. So as we try to look back, we take the wrong lessons because we're trying to overfit the decision quality to the outcome quality, and then we're trying to deal with this problem of what information did you have at the time of the decision, and we don't remember that properly. So now how can we're going to start to tell a lot of just so stories that just sort of like fit our narratives. So a, a real, a very good example of this actually is this kind of like what I sort of think is like this sort of national fever dream that's occurred that in relation to Hillary Clinton's campaign strategy in 2016. And, and this is whether you supported her or not, this is, this is just what's happened in terms of the way that people remember this. So we, everybody, everybody knows, oh, her campaign strategy was so bad as it related to Wisconsin, Michigan and Pennsylvania, right? Like, you know that. So, um, and, and you hear people talk about it all the time. It's just like, it's all over everything. Um, we're still talking about today. It's like three and a half months, three and a half years later. And the other thing that's true that everybody knows it was horrible is that everybody knew it at the time. So when you listen to pundits on TV, it's like, yeah, that was so horrible. Her campaign was so poorly run. We all knew that. So I just thought, okay, I'm going to do a Google search, right? And I put I, I put in Hillary Clinton 2016. I can't remember, you know, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, something to that effect. And there, it's many articles deep about it. But the first one that's really critiquing and saying that was, she was so bad occurs on November 9th, 2016, which funnily enough is the day after the election. Now, 
what I think is really interesting about this is that it's such a good example of both of these problems. The first one being resulting, which is we try to really fit the outcome to the decision quality. And the other is hindsight bias that we aren't good at remembering our own experience um, or what our knowledge was at the time. Um, so we think it, we think her campaign strategy was terrible because she lost those three states, not because anybody said her campaign strategy was terrible in the first place. So, so that's number one. So what happened was that we had these kind of close calls that occurred. She lost those three states. And so then somehow that must've been horrible in terms of her decision-making in relation to those, um, as opposed to a more simple explanation, which was there was a polling error that wasn't systemic, meaning most states polled actually pretty accurately and nationally it pulled accurate. Uh, there was pretty accurate polling. And then there was a handful of states where there was a polling error. And the funny thing about polling errors is you can't find out about them until after the fact. So, uh, but the other thing that's so interesting about that is everybody, the everybody knew it thing. So the closest thing that I could find was there was an Atlantic article where it was like, is Donald Trump outflanking Hillary Clinton? And they were sort of exploring like, oh, should she be in these three states? And the conclusion was, no, it's good that she's in Arizona and North Carolina and Florida. So they sort of pondered it for like a, a hot second um, and then sort of said no. And they, I think they actually said in the article, I suppose if she loses those states, people will think she did poor, you know, that was stupid. Uh, but I actually, but they actually thought it was right. That was kind of the closest that I could find. Um, and then there were two articles critiquing Donald Trump for campaigning in those three states, saying he was an idiot because Clinton was so far ahead. What on earth was he doing in those states? So I suppose if those things existed, then the other thing couldn't, right? Um, so I, I think that this is such a good example, right? There's nothing more crowdsourced than campaign strategy. We're seeing it now with with Biden and Trump. Um, it's all people are talking about. So if this was so well-known at the time, I would be able to find it without having to search very hard. And I cannot. So if that's happening on a national level where there's an evidentiary record that I can go look at, think about what's happening with your own ability to take a look back at your own decisions and actually figure out what, why, when, how, because we can't even do it with this. So the, I think the key to unlocking that is exactly what we've been talking about. I went and looked at the evidentiary record. I said, well, let me go and look, which is what most people aren't doing. They're doing it from memory. So I said, let me go look. So what's interesting about having these teams run in this way, where you're soliciting the feedback independently, you're bringing it together. People are sort of looking at that themselves and then coming into meetings and then discussing. And in particular saying, well, we agree on these areas, but that's uninteresting. Let's look at the places where people actually have different opinions. Let's allow people to express their rationales. In other words, convey them, not to convince anybody else, but just to convey their rationales in order to inform the people who have to actually make the decision with no intention to this conversation that there needs to be agreement. In fact, that should not at all be the goal of the conversation to have agreement or consensus. Um, notice what's happened when you do that you've naturally created an evidentiary record. People have written down their rationales. They've given their, their forecasts, right? They've said their ratings. I think this market opportunity is a four out of five. They've said what they think. The rationales have the information in them that is informing those ratings. So now I can do, I can Hillary Clinton it, right? I can go back and look at the evidentiary record and I can say, okay, what were the outcomes that I thought that we thought were gonna come from this? How strong, how, how confident were we in the decision? Um, what are the things that we thought in particular on these, about these particular qualities, say, of a job candidate? Um, and then we now can go back and look. And, and now we can actually evaluate and retrospect the decision because we can actually look at the decision as it sat at the time. Well, that's really interesting what you're saying. So that we have a meeting not to decide consensus, like should we hire this person or not? And then we all walk out of here as a unified team, but to just write down everybody's opinion because it's a valuable trail for later for knowing whether we made the right decision or not. It's a valuable trail for later for knowing what the quality of the decision was. Not necessarily whether you made the right decision or not. I think that's really hard. I like to think about it as, was it a high quality decision? Did we, did we think about it in, in a, a reasonable way? The knowledge that we brought to bear on it, was there something that revealed itself after the fact that we really should have known before the fact? Because mostly the answer is no. 
Uh, but was there something we could have found out? How can we bring that into our process going forward? Right. If if something revealed itself where, oh, if we had queried on this, if we had pushed against this, maybe we would have learned something that would have changed our mind. Okay. We didn't know it at the time, but now at least we can include it in our process going forward. And this is this is something that we should make sure is now in that feedback that we're eliciting prior to entering the meeting. And in order to hire the candidate, everybody doesn't have to agree that they're, they're, they're the greatest candidate on earth. Right. Um, now, I think that someone should be able to veto the candidate for sure. But as long as people have sort of expressed their opinions, whoever is kind of ultimately deciding that decision, you know, deciding it doesn't need everybody to agree with them. Because honestly, if you do have everybody agreeing with you, people are probably not telling you what they really believe. I mean, that that's just, you know, people agree yeah. on things like the earth is round. I mean, that that's just a fact. But whether this candidate is going to be an amazing hire, I would be really alarmed if you had 10 people who saw the candidate and all felt that. That would be weird. You know, one of the things that I really got from the new book is that you shouldn't be deciding whether you made a good decision or a bad decision, but how surprised were you by the results? Like how close were you to the actual result? So can you kind of just dive deeper into that? Yeah. The importance of surprise. So I love that you brought that up because that goes back to what I was saying about, are you learning from failure or success? Right? Because you want to be learning from both. So when, when I think about the, the way that postmortems are normally done, there's that word mortem, right, which is dead. So if we thought about um, uh, we, um, we hire, let, let's say we hire a candidate and uh, they turn out and we all rated that, that, that person and whatever, maybe we rated them really well, or they were moderate or, you know, we, we really just needed to get someone into the position, whatever it is. And the, and the candidate turns out to be horrible. Um, once we have them in the, once we've hired them, they're just awful. Um, we'll have a big meeting about it, trying to figure out where we went wrong. Right. Uh, this is true. Like if I make an investment and the investment, um, performs 20% worse than, than I thought it was going to. We're in a we're in a room. The team is in a room that made this decision. And we might be saying things like, we're trying to examine the process. But it's the bad outcome that got us in the room. And we're having a very long meeting about this. And whoever ultimately made that decision is kind of under the gun. And the people who are consulting on the decision and informing the decision, they're all under the gun. And we're all trying to figure out what went wrong. But if the candidate works out, if we were mediocre on the candidate and they end up being stellar, we all knew it in advance. And oh yeah, I know I knew that person was gonna be great. And we're just patting ourselves on the back for how great we are at hiring. If we invest and the uh, investment performs 20% better than we expected, we're nobody's in a room. We're all patting ourselves on the back for how awesome we are at investing and making investment decisions. But notice that whether it's 20% worse or 20% better, or whether we think that a candidate is going to be sort of right in the middle of, of the distribution of people we could hire, and they turn out to be at the right tail or the left tail, it doesn't matter. It was unexpected. Good or bad, it was unexpected. And we didn't, we weren't calibrated in terms of our forecast of what the future might look like in a, in a way that we would have liked to have been. And that's really what we should care about, is did the world turn out in a way that was unexpected? That's what we care about. And we should care about whether that turns out that way on the good side or the bad side, because the whole point of making better decisions going forward is that we are calibrated to what is true of the world such that I am better than other people at predicting the future that will occur given a decision that I make. I can think more clearly about what the possible outcomes are. I can think more clearly about what the probability of those outcomes are. I can think clearly, more clearly about what the payoffs are. I can think about all that stuff. I have a better crystal ball. It's a little bit less cloudy than other people's crystal balls. And I can see the future better. Well, in order to do that, sometimes that means that I didn't see the future well on the good end also. And yet we pay no attention to it. Why? Because what we care about is good and bad. Did I win or lose? And if we lost, we're all talking about it. Even if the loss was expected, even if it was something that was totally in our reasonable set of things and we sort of thought this might happen, we're still all talking about it, even though it was expected. And if it's unexpected, fine, but you should be talking about the forecast, not just, why was that so bad? 
But then once we get to the good end, we're all just having champagne. But the problem is that you don't want to be miscalibrated on that side either, because frankly, under allocation of resources is just about as as bad a problem for your business as over allocating your resources. We want to get it just right. We want to be Goldilocks as much as possible. So what that means is that we have to think about expectation. And in order to do that, you have to, again, have this record that comes from this kind of pre-work so that you actually know what your, your reasonable expectations of the world were at the time. And the other thing is that then what this allows you to do is close the feedback loop in a way that you can actually overcome this problem of what I call the paradox of experience, which is that experience is necessary for learning, but individual experiences will interfere with our ability to learn because of things like resulting in hindsight bias. And this allows you to overcome that because you can close those feedback loops in a more chess-like way. I don't have the paradox of experience in chess. If I lose at chess, I know why. I did not make good decisions. But when I lose at poker, like in life, I get to go, oh, maybe it was luck. How could I have known that's what he was holding? You know, there's all sorts of ways that I can get out of it in poker. So we want to create something that's more chess-like so that we can start to close those feedback loops and learn from both sides of the equation and stop worrying less about whether we won or lost and stop worrying more about whether the world unfolded in an unexpected way. Well, so what should we be writing down? Like in the company where you get to create it from scratch, how much of our decisions are we creating a paper trail of? Yeah, so in in the last couple of minutes here, first you need to know what kind of decision you're dealing with. So there are certain types of decisions where you can take shortcuts. Uh, Simply put, they're ones that are low impact or ones that are easy to reverse. So I've got a chapter, chapter seven is all about that. Uh, if you actually, if you subscribe to my newsletter, you can get an excerpt of chapter seven. I got it. I got um, it in the ma- in the mail. Yeah. So, uh, so understand what type of decision that you're dealing with. Is this something that you need to slow down on? If you, uh, if you can go pretty fast, you can kind of do a skinny version of this. So I could imagine, all right, uh, in, within the meeting, let we're all trying to figure out like, wh- what do we, what do we think uh, um, the likely return on this investment is? And everybody could write it down on a piece of paper and hand it to the front. Notice you're still accomplishing the same thing, but it's just kind of a skinny version of it. But once you realize this, this is a decision that that really does require some time, um, you want to do the pre-work. And what you're writing down in the pre-work is essentially what are the things that must be implicitly true in order for me to think this is a good decision? So, and we don't really think about that very much. So, uh, as an example, if I'm investing in a candidate, I'll, I'll give you like a super simple example. If, if I'm investing in a candidate and uh, it's a high priority for me to think that they're a good cultural fit, instead of saying something that's really mushy like that, I should break down what are the things that we value in this culture and figure out what those are and then actually rate those qualities for that candidate. So break it down, right? Is uh, competitiveness important for us? Is, um, uh, do we care if they're nice, right? Uh, do we care about their charisma? Those kinds of things. Um, and then you can you can obviously do some some forecasting as well, right? So what, what do I think the probability is this person will be with us in a year? Um, if they aren't with us in a year, we can do some pre-morteming. Why do I think that happened? So now we could, we could add pre-mortems into what the pre, pre-work is. So that th- those kinds of things are in the book about, you know, how much are you sort of getting ahead and thinking about, well, if we were to hire this person, for example, why do I think that, that in retro, if, and it turns out they're a bad hire, let's think about what are the reasons that that might be true. So, so in other words, you're saying if the world unfolds in a way I don't like, let's think about what that world looks like. That sets up an expectation of what the world looks like. So uh, there's all sorts of things that you can include, and it's going to be different depending on the decision. This is obviously great to do if it's a decision that repeats for you, right? So if you're on an investment committee, right? So you're, you're making these kinds of decisions all the time. You can start to create a rubric um, that you can, that, that where you're sort of giving the same opinions over and over again, and then you can start to create a very large data set of the quality of your opinions that you can then check against the world. 
right? To, to make sure that you're calibrated to what the world might tell you. So it can be anything. It can ratings on scale of zero to 10. It could be yes, no questions. It could be pre-mortems and backcasts. Um, pre-mortem again, why did I fail? Let me think about why. Um, backcast, ooh, I, it's a year from now and I succeeded. Why did that happen? Um, uh, it can be really specific probabilistic forecasts. What's the probability there will be a vaccine by May of 2021, right? So we could forecast that and that could be part of the feedback elicitation process. So it's very dependent on the type of decision that you're making. But in the book, I offer a whole bunch of different things that you could sort of choose from in order to create those rubrics. Uh, This is awesome. And uh, I I really enjoyed reading the book and the conversation like 10 times as much. So uh, thank you so much for taking the time to put the book together and to come on the show and share with us. How can people find out more about what you're working on next and more information on the book? Yeah. So uh, you can find anything Annie Duke at www.annieduke.com. That's where my newsletter is. That's where you can certainly find links, links to buy the books at the usual places. Uh, and you can follow me on Twitter at Annie, at Annie Duke. I'm actually pretty um, active there. Also on the website, um, there's a contact form. So um, you can contact me, not just to hire me, by the way, but just to ask me a question. And I am not perfect at getting back to everybody, but I sure do try my best. Um, I love having conversations with the people who've read my work. It's actually incredibly helpful to me. So um, yeah, so hopefully people will take advantage of that. What what a request. Uh, well, this is awesome. Thank you so much for your Thank time. Thank you. Annie. I hope you enjoyed what I consider to be a master's level course in decision making. If you haven't heard our first episode with Annie Duke back in season one, that's like the entry level decision making class. Please go back and take a listen to it and all of the amazing content from the previous two seasons. Make sure you subscribe to the show. If you could leave a review, that would be amazing. But if you want to go deeper into these topics, maybe go to the master's, the PhD level decision-making class, come chat with us at the Professional AF Podcast Insiders Group on Facebook. That's where you can interact with almost a thousand people who listen to the podcast and just want to chat further about the topics. I am Diana Kander reminding you that curiosity is your superpower. And I look forward to talking to you soon.